So we're on this uh, series in Mark's Gospel. It's a short series. We've just got um, six uh, passages we're looking at that cover really the whole of Mark's Gospel. And it's tied uh, this series to the house group, the, the focus group material. Um, and it's just uh, maybe worth emphasizing that the... Uh, the place of the focus groups. Many of you will be involved in those already, but for those who are not, I would just, you know, recommend them to you because they are the way, really, that we get to grips in a deeper way with the, the scriptures and with what we want at the root of our lives. The pattern that we have for the focus groups is that they meet three times in the year. They meet in the autumn at this time of year, and then they meet in, in uh, January, February, and then they, and they meet sort of May, June, I think that's roughly right. Um, and in each case, it's about six weeks, it's six to eight weeks. So it's a fairly short span, and then you get a break. So <laughs> you're not signing your life away. Um, but for me, the, the real value of the focus groups is they help to root some of the scriptures that we look at on the Sunday morning, they root them much more in my everyday life. Because I don't know about you, but I wonder, you know, given at 12 o'clock today, once you've all gone home and have your lunch, and somebody says to you, what was the sermon about? <laughs> Actually, maybe I'll ring you up. <laughs> I'll find out, I'll conduct a little survey. And, and for me, just the having to read the passage again, you know, because these are the same passages that are looked at in the focus groups, just having to read it again and, and think about it and discuss it with other people is uh, a way of, of rooting it like that. So the focus groups are for real people living ordinary lives, but wanting those lives to be informed by the Bible in its teaching. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me to, from day to day. Not just on a Sunday morning, <laughs> but from day to day. And that's the value of the thing. And, and actually you'll see in the notices, I think I haven't got one with me, but there's a little thing about the, um, the house groups in there. And Martin is the contact. And for those of you who don't know, Martin's now going to stand up and do a headstand. <laughs> Thank you very much, Martin's over here. <laughs> Yeah. So, if you need to speak to Martin and, and would like to do that, then please, um, please do that. So, here we are in, um, in, in Mark's Gospel, um, and we've come to this point, which is an absolutely key passage in the whole of the Gospel. There's a real turning point that's happening in the Gospel here. The first Eight chapters, uh, Gordon McCracken introduced those to us a couple of weeks ago by talking about the kingdom of God. And then last week, Ali Scott was preaching on the passage in Mark chapter 4, which is about the um, stilling of the storm. And now we've come to this, this passage. And this is a point at which the whole of the gospel takes a, a different direction, really. Something is happening here which is of enormous importance because for the very first time we come to an unambiguous answer to this question who is Jesus that's the question that's been hanging around for the first eight chapters of the gospel and and here 
in chapter 8 in Mark's Gospel, you come to the answer that Peter gives. Peter answered, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, was the, the translation that Martin used. Same word. The um, Messiah is a Hebrew word, the Christ is a, is a Latin word, but it means the same thing. The, and that, that's the key for the whole of this part of the Gospel. Mark's account is um, very bold and very simple. Both Luke and uh, Matthew have slightly different accounts of this incident. In, uh, in Matthew's Gospel, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in Luke's Gospel, he says, you are the Christ of God. But in, in Mark's Gospel, typical of Mark's Gospel, it's just very bold and very simple. You are the Christ. And you wonder whether, well I wonder anyway, whether, you know, Peter had been thinking about that beforehand. Or whether he just, you know, Jesus answered the question and he just blurted it out. I think actually given Peter's character, that's perhaps more likely. You ever hear yourself doing that? You know, you say something and you think, oh, that's what I think. You are the Christ. It just, he couldn't hold it in anymore. Whatever the, the dynamics were for Peter, this is absolutely key in the gospel story. In, it's been hanging around this question, as I say, in, in Mark chapter 1, that was the passage that Gordon preached on two weeks ago. It's there, it's implicit, this question about who is Jesus. Because Jesus comes along and he says, uh, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. And one of the reactions to that is surely this guy? You know, coming to say these things. And in, in Mark chapter 4 that Ali preached on last week is actually explicit in that passage, isn't it? Because after the stilling of the storm, the disciples say, who is this? Who is this that has this power over nature? And here we come to the answer. You are the Christ. Actually, the, this is, as I say, this is the, 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 the question for the whole of these first eight chapters. They, I find that the, um, the structure of Mark's Gospel is absolutely fascinating. Do you know what the favorite word of Mark is in the whole of his Gospel? Any ideas? Got plenty to choose from. <laughs> well, here we go. Oh, of course, yeah, you were all going to say that, weren't you? Yeah. <laughs> it's a Greek word, it's the word euthus. And it means immediately, at once, straight away, and then. That's what it means in English. And Mark uses it 41 times in his Gospel. He uses it 12 times in chapter 1. And actually, if you read through chapter 1, you, you'll see it. It doesn't always appear very obviously in the English translations because, it's, as I say, it's translated in slightly different ways, given the context. But it's often at once, immediately, and then, and then, and then, immediately, at once. And the impact of, of this is that the, um, the gospel goes off like an express train. Um, actually, Gordon McCracken pointed this out a couple of weeks ago, that there are no birth narratives in Mark's Gospel. 
There are no shepherds. There are no angels. There are no wise men. There isn't even any Mary or Joseph. There's just Isaiah's prophecy, John the Baptist, and by verse 15 of chapter 1, verse 15, first chapter, here's Jesus saying, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. And it just rushes through the, the Galilean ministry, these first eight chapters. That's the question that's around there. Then the next chapters, 9 to 11, it begins to slow down. Because having, having gone off, whoosh, it, you get to this point in the, in the gospel, chapter 8, and it begins to slow down. And the next couple of chapters are about just the journey to Jerusalem. And the last four chapters, the last four, are devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. So having gone off at great speed, it gets to this point in the gospel, and then it begins to slow down. And it slows down, and it slows down, and it slows down. And the impact of that, if you look at the gospel as a whole, is to focus attention on those last chapters, on those last events, on the, the trial and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Because what those, questions, what those chapters are doing is answering a different question. The first eight chapters is about who is this? Whoosh, let's get through that. And then... In these later chapters, the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean that this is the Christ? And the focus is, is through this way of slowing down the story, is right on the events at the end of Jesus' life. So Jesus says to Peter, you've caught the dream, you've understood the dream is of the one who will usher in the kingdom of God, the Christ of God, the Messiah. And that's the dream, by the way, that has sustained the nation of Israel through the centuries, through the time of, of, of Moses and then the promised land and then the exile and then the return. This is the dream. That one day, one will come who will lead God's people back to the greatness that they felt they once enjoyed. Yes, Peter, you've understood the dream, but you haven't yet understood what it means. The dream has spiritual roots. It must have spiritual roots or it wouldn't survive. I don't know what you dream for. What do you dream for? Win the lottery? Perhaps, you know, perhaps it's more, um, I don't know, personal. Perhaps it's about reconciliation in your family. Perhaps it's about healing for yourself. Perhaps it's for unity and peace in our world. But unless that dream, or rather if, if that dream is only physical, it won't survive. A dream that is going to be lasting has to have spiritual roots and this one does have spiritual roots but it also has physical implications what does it mean what does it mean in this world what does it mean to you and me now so let's have a think about that first of all the spiritual roots 
What does it mean to have spiritual roots? But I, I want to say, actually, first of all, that, though, that um, actually in Christian life, the spiritual and the physical are always linked for us. I mean, maybe when we get to heaven it will be different, I don't know. don't know what our body in heaven is going to be like. But now, they're always linked, physical and spiritual. And that's because, of course, Jesus represented both physical and spiritual. What we claim as Christians is that this Jew who was executed in a remote corner of the, the Roman Empire, he... That man, that body, was God. That's, it, that's I mean, it's so bizarre, really, isn't it? <laughs> you know, but that's what we say. And because of that, the, the spiritual and the, the physical are always to go together. So in Matthew's account of this incident, Jesus says to Peter, this was not revealed to you by man but by my Father in heaven. There's something, there's something deeply spiritual about this. If the dream wasn't spiritually rooted, it wouldn't survive the harsh realities of life and death. It wouldn't survive a crucifixion. The, the dream is rooted spiritually. If the dream wasn't spiritual, then the idea that for the queen or for anybody else she would rest in peace and rise in glory would mean nothing, would it? If the dream wasn't spiritual. And in fact, there's a, uh, there's a, a deep um, reality of faith which is being hinted at, I think, here. And it's this, that the faith is both given by God, it's a spiritual gift, and it needs to be grasped by us. So it's, it's, it's spiritual, it's a gift of God, but it's physical because we need to take hold of that. And in, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul is talking about the spiritual gifts, one of those gifts is faith. We cannot create faith in ourselves or in anybody else. Faith is a gift of God, but... Or perhaps it's and. <laughs> we need to take hold of that faith and make it ours so that both those things, the physical and the spiritual, come together. And so this, this dream has to have spiritual roots, and indeed, of course, it does. Roots that go back through into the, the scriptures of the Old Testament and right through the prophets to the point where in Jesus' own day, People were looking for this one who would come who, was, who had a spiritual meaning, a, a spiritual rootedness about him. That's Jesus. But it also has to have physical implications. And the physical element of this dream is not what Peter expected and, and may not be quite what we expect either. Because the physical outworking, actually, of this dream is sacrifice. Sacrifice. Giving up. I mean, it's obvious, isn't it, for Jesus. What did Jesus give up? He gave up his life. For you and I. 
And Peter couldn't cope with that, really, and neither could the other disciples at this stage in their journey. He wanted the, the, the dream to be different. He didn't want the implication to be sacrifice. He wanted it to be much more, yeah, let's, you know, yeah, yeah, let's get on with it, you know, let's chuck the Romans out and all that stuff. No. That's not the physical implication. In, in one way, that would be quite easy, wouldn't it? Well, I don't know whether this I've never chucked out any Romans, so I don't know how easy it is. But. Sacrifice is a much more difficult path in terms of the, the physical requirement of this. What does it mean? Is there a sacrifice for us, a physical sacrifice in owning this spiritual dream? In saying along with Peter, you are the Christ, what's the sacrifice? Well, it's not for, for many of us, and perhaps any of us, it won't be giving up our lives, although for some Christians it is. Some Christians face that choice and have to make that journey. It's much more likely that for us it will mean embedding Christ-like qualities in the way that we live and putting to death in ourselves the things that are not Christ-like. So embedding the qualities of, of compassion and kindness and humility and concern for justice and peace and putting to death the greed and the selfishness and the me-first attitudes, they're there, aren't they? They're there in all of us. And the sacrifice means not allowing those impulses to be the ones that rule us. And perhaps there's, there's another thing too, actually, given that you and I, and I, I think probably this applies to all of us here, whatever your disposable income is, <laughs> we're wealthy. By standards of the world, we are wealthy. And perhaps one of the sacrifices for wealthy Christians is to surrender some of that wealth and to allow there to be justice in that kind of way too. So have we caught that dream? If so, it will sustain us through life, through death, and into the life to come. That's the nature of the dream. But it has implications now, physical implications, implications of sacrifice and for some genuine hardship. May God give us grace to be faithful. Let us pray.